Joshua chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. When the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. The people crossed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Well, uh, last year it was game one of the NBA Finals. Uh, Cleveland Cavaliers were playing the Golden State Warriors. Uh, and it was, it was game one, as I said, and it was near the end of the game. The score was tied 107-107. Uh, there was like 4.7 seconds left. And uh, at this point, uh, Cleveland ha- had had the ball, and they were shooting foul shots. They missed the last foul shot, but it was still tied, and they happened to get the ball back again. So J.R. Smith gets the ball down by the basket, and he has three good options. First option is he can put the ball up really quickly because he was down by the basket. Second option is he could call a timeout. Or the third option is he could pass to somebody outside to take a shot uh, because LeBron James was open at least at one point. But then he did something that was inexplicable. He took the ball and just started dribbling it around, seeming to try to run the clock out. It turned out that at the last second he's passed it to someone, but it was too late. The buzzer went, and they weren't able to score a basket. After that, they ended up losing the game in overtime. And afterwards, they asked him like, what, what happened, and it was discovered that he didn't know what the score was. He thought that they were up by a point, so he was trying to run out the clock. 
Because he didn't recognize the reality of the situation, he failed to respond appropriately to the situation, and as a result, his team ended up losing the game. Last week, we looked at the question, who can God use? And we learned that God can use anyone from anywhere for any purpose when he or she trusts in him. This year we're going to this this week we're going to consider a different question. We're going to consider the question, how can we recognize and correctly respond to the activity of God in our lives? In other words, when God is moving our lives, how do we position ourselves appropriately for him to act in our lives? And there are three things in this passage that I think we can learn about how we can correctly respond to the activity of God in our lives. The first thing that Joshua, that we learn in this passage, is that we need to follow. In verse 2, it says, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Now, the ark of the covenant was a symbol and a representation of God's presence. And so when the ark moved, it was kind of equivalent to God moving. And so what Joshua, or the the rulers of the people are saying, is when God moves, then you need to follow after God. Now what the text doesn't say, it doesn't say, when you decide the direction you want to go, bring the Ark of the Covenant behind you. No, it says, when the Ark moved, when God moves, then follow after Him. See, something we need to get our minds around in this country is that God's not interested in following our plans. Sometimes we, we think that we, we just make plans and then we bring God along. We carry, like they would be carrying the Ark of the Covenant along with them. And that's not how it works. We need to follow after God. God moves, and when He moves, and only when He moves, then we follow after Him. We talk about things like following our dreams. Or living our passions, doing what we love to do. Something that's popular in our culture, but according to new research from researchers from Stanford University and Yale and U.S. College, they found that following your passion is likely to lead you to overly limited pursuits, inflated expectations, and early or eventual burnout. The study's authors concluded people are often told to find their passion as though passions and interests are preformed and must simply be discovered. This idea, however, has hidden motivational implications. Urging people to find their passion may lead them to put all their eggs in one basket, but then to drop that basket when it becomes difficult to carry. The study shows us that following our own path, even if it's Our own desires and trying to bring God along with us will never satisfy us. The famous New York Times writer David Brooks put it this way, Most successful young people don't look inside and then then plan a life. They look outside and find a need or God's call which summons their lives. It's not about us charting a path. It's about seeing where God is moving and following Him where He would take us. You know, you look at the Gospels and how Jesus spoke to people. He didn't come to Matthew, the tax collector, and say, I'm going to make you the best tax collector in all of Judea. He didn't come to Peter and say, I'm going to make you the best fisherman in all of Judea. He doesn't come to the rich young ruler and say, follow your dreams and you'll be happy and have eternal life. No, he says, follow me. Lose your life. 
Leave that other life behind and you'll find life in me. You see, there's a fine line between faith and foolishness. In verse 4, it says, Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Speaking of the ark, do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. The leaders say, follow the ark, but keep a distance so that you'll know where to go, because the way that you're going is not somewhere you've gone before. Do you know why it's somewhere they haven't gone before? It's because they're going to go right through the Jordan. This is not a natural thing that's going to happen. A miracle is going to happen. But imagine if the Israelites had just decided to do that on their own. They decided, our plan is just to go right through the Jordan River. And they go to the banks of the river and they start putting their feet in the water, saying, telling it to part. I mean, that, that's foolishness. And they'd be insane to do something like that. See, if God is not involved in this process, then what they're doing is foolishness. And the same thing is true in our life. If God is not involved in our life, if we're trying to do things on our own strength, even if we're trying to do great things, it's foolishness. Because we can't do anything without God. When God's involved in it, nothing is impossible. But sometimes... We claim faith for things that God has not promised and that God is not involved in. When we do that, that's not faith, that's foolishness. When we try to follow our own path and bring God along with us. Now you might be asking yourself, so how do I follow after God or how do I know when God is leading me down a particular path? And that's a question that we can't consider fully in this message. But a few years ago... um, we did a series on hearing God. And uh, if you go on our website under the sermon archives, you can access that and it'll be posted on Facebook um, after the service today. And that kind of walks through what it looks like to sense the presence of God and find His will. But there's, in short, a few different ways that we can hear from God and sense His activity. Uh, number one, he, God speaks to us through prayer. Number two, He We can sense God's presence as God lines up circumstances in our life. Third, we can see God's will and God's leading through His Word as we spend time with Him reading that. And fourth, we can sense God's leading through His people, the church, as they speak truth into our lives. And so again, you can listen to those on our website or on Facebook if if you'd like to. So the first thing that we learn here is that we need to follow after God if we're going to be aligned with uh, His purposes. The second thing He tells us that we learn here is that we need to be consecrated. Verse 5, it says, Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. The people were told to prepare themselves for the activity of God. In the Old, uh, Old Testament, there's this repeated command to be holy because God is holy. God has called Israel out from all the nations to be His special people, to be His children. And so they're to act like children of the, of the Heavenly Father. They're to live differently. They're not to, to involve themselves in the, as of the practices of the other nations. 
And for us as believers today, we're not bound by the ceremonial and civil aspects of the law that we're given to Israel. Like, we don't have to do animal sacrifices, or we don't have to uh, worry about planting two different kinds of seeds in the same field. Those are civil and ceremonial aspects of the law. But God does call us to be holy. Just like Israel were children of God, we're children of God. And He calls us to be holy, and He calls us to be different and to be set apart. And if we want God to use us, and if we want to be involved in God's plan then we need to be people of holiness. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, I thought last week we, we, we talked about how God could use anyone from anywhere for any purpose for His glory. Well, that's true, He can. But He takes us from where we are and He, he doesn't just leave us that way, He changes us and transforms us. You know, look, you look at the story of Rahab that we looked at last week. She was a prostitute, a Canaanite prostitute. But He... God doesn't leave her there. He calls her to leave that life behind and to find her life in God. And she doesn't stay a prostitute. She ends up going with uh, the prince of Judah, Salmon. So she doesn't stay where she's at. God calls her to something different. And if we're not living lives of holiness, it can limit what God can do through us. You know, you look at the people of Israel... They sinned against the Lord. They were continually grumbling against the Lord. And what happened? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. That generation that came out from Egypt wasn't able to enter into the promised land. Even Moses, who was the servant of the Lord, he wasn't able to enter into the promised land. He could only see it from a distance because of his sin and because of the incident at the rock. The question is, are we going to be a part of what God is doing? The question is not, is God going to accomplish what He's going to accomplish? The question is, are we going to be able to be involved in that? In the book of 2 Timothy, Paul gives instructions to Timothy of what it looks like to be a worker who is approved by God. Look at what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies you know that breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul says, if anyone cleanses himself, if anyone consecrates himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Well, a few years ago, I decided I was going to grow some watermelons in uh, my garden. And I decided I wasn't going to grow these little sugar baby watermelons. I was going to grow a really big watermelon. And so I got these seeds for these orange, tender, sweet watermelons. Uh, and they, uh, they got to be about 25 to 40 pounds. 
And uh, so they took a long time to mature. So I started them inside in probably March or so uh, with the seeds. And then about May, I brought them outside. And that year, it happened to be exceptionally warm, so they did pretty well. Uh, some, of them, some of them didn't make it, but a bunch of them did well. And I took care of them. I went, went out and watered them day after day after day. And eventually, some melons started to form. Uh, but there was one that just kind of took off a lot faster than the others, and I only had one kind of bigger one at that point. And I'd come out every day, and it would just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And this was getting towards uh, the middle or later part of the summer, or I don't know exactly when, maybe the end of July or early August. And I'm thinking to myself, this looks like it might be ready to eat. And it seemed like it had stopped growing, but the thing that's difficult about growing watermelons is uh, it can be tricky to know when exactly they're ripe. And if you pick them too early, they don't ripen anymore after they're off the vine, so they're ruined. So there's a number of different ways you can determine if they're ripe. They say that um, there's, there's these little tendrils on the watermelon, and they say if the tendril that's closest to the watermelon dries out, that means that the watermelon is ripe. They also say if the the underside of the melon that's on the ground turns yellow, that also means that they're ripe. But the most common way that you can determine if they're ripe is if you put your ear up to the watermelon and knock on it, it's supposed to have this hollow thud. So I had read about this, and I'd go out there every day, and I was like knocking on it and thinking, like, is this hollow or not? And I didn't know exactly what I was looking for. So I keep knocking on it, and then one day I finally think to myself, Sounds hollow to me. Seems like it's ready. So I take it and bring it inside, and I'm all proud of this ginormous 30-pound watermelon. And I get out this big knife, and I go and I cut it open, and it's yellow inside. And so I tell myself, well, maybe they say it's orange, but they really mean yellow. And then I ate it, and it tasted like a piece of uncooked squash. And then I tried to tell myself, oh, it's not that bad. I could probably eat it because I'd put all this time into it. But it wasn't ripe. It was useless. I ended up throwing it, throwing it out. Some of us here, you know, maybe we wonder to ourselves, why don't I sense God's presence in my life? Or why hasn't God used me for his purposes? Maybe the reason that he hasn't used you in greater ways is that you're not ready. Just like God, the perfect gardener, he knows what lies beneath the surface. He knows what's underneath. He knows what's inside. And he's not going to choose us. He's not going to pick us if we're not ready for what he's calling us to. So maybe God today is calling you to consecrate yourself. Purify yourself. He's, maybe He's calling you to a greater holiness today. Maybe He's calling us to give up an addiction, whether that's to drugs or pornography or alcohol or media, whatever that may be. Maybe that means giving up a sinful lifestyle, like living a life of homosexuality or living together or sleeping together before being married. Maybe that means giving up a grumbling spirit that complains about everything rather than being grateful to God. Maybe it means giving up a heart of gossip where we seek to tear other people down. Maybe it means seeking God's will and God's plan rather than our own will. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we have to be perfect for God to use us. I mean, if, if that was the standard, then God wouldn't use anybody because nobody is perfect. We all fall short. But God is looking for people who are growing in holiness, who repent. That when we do wrong, we're quick to keep short accounts with God and that we, our hearts are focused upon Him and His will above all else. So we respond to the activity of God by following after God, by consecrating ourselves to God. And then finally, we respond to the activity of God by watching. Verses 10 to 11 says, Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. See, when we're following after God and we're living lives of holiness, the only thing that's left to do is watch with wonder with what God is going to do. God gives the Israelites this sign and this assurance. The fact that, we're go- that, we're going to, that He's going to part the sea is evidence and proof to them that God is going to be with them when they face these enemies that are very strong. And so when we're following after Him, when we've purified ourselves and seeking Him with our whole heart, the only thing that's left is to follow, or to listen and to see what He's going to do. Remember the main idea of Joshua chapter 1 a few chapters ago. We talked about how God guarantees the success of His people when they trust and obey Him. And we looked at how God promised to be with Joshua. He told Joshua, be strong and courageous, for I'll be with you. And he promised that he would bring him success. And we see that God is faithful to his promises in chapter 2 and chapter 3. In chapter 2, remember the report that the spies returned to Joshua with in verses 20, verse 24. They said, Truly the Lord has given, us, given all the land into our hands, and also the inhabitants of the land melt away before us. In the chapter we're looking at today, God tells Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. God is faithful to His promises. He will come through on His promises. And He's going to do amazing things through His people, Israel. And when we've done those two things, follow and consecrate ourselves, we just watch what what He's going to do. So how can we sum up and apply what, this passage to our lives? And how can we take, what can we take away from it today? The Christian life is not about doing great things for God. It's about positioning ourselves so that we get to experience the great things that God is going to do. Christian life is not about doing great things for God. It's about positioning ourselves so that we get to experience the great things that God is going to do. We do that by following Him, being consecrated to Him, and watching Him do what only He can do. That's what faith is all about. It was 1955, a chilly December evening, busy street in the capital of Alabama, and a 42-year-old seamstress boarded a segregated city bus after returning, returning home after a long day of work. She took her seat near the middle, just behind the front whites-only section. And at the next 
stop, more passengers got on. When every seat in the white section was filled, the bus driver ordered the black passengers in the middle row to stand so a white man could sit. But this seamstress named Rosa Parks refused. And her action on that day set off a monumental uh, event and, and set off kind of the civil rights movement and kind of impacted history in a miraculous way. But what's interesting about Rosa Parks that I, I wasn't familiar with was the fact that Rosa Parks was a believer in Christ. And see, Rosa Parks wasn't the first person to refuse to leave her seat. This had actually happened sometime before, about 10 months before. A 15-year-old girl uh, was asked to leave her seat, and she started screaming that she had constitutional rights, and she was forcefully removed, and it was this whole to-do. Nothing happened as a result of that. But when Rosa Parks did it, it sparked a movement. And the reason that it sparked a movement is because of her, as one author said, she had this almost biblical quality about her. She didn't start yelling and screaming. When they, she was asked to, to move, she just said, no, I've paid the same fare as everybody else. This is a first come, first ser- service or section. I'm not even sitting in the whites only section. I'm sitting in this middle section. I'm not going to leave. They said, well, we're going to arrest you. Well, you can do that if you want. And because of her action, it sparked a movement. Michael Horton says this about her. Rosa Parks didn't wake up one day and decide to become the first lady of civil rights. She just boarded a bus as she did every day for work and decided that this day she wasn't going to sit in the back as a proper black person was expected to do in the 1950s in Montgomery, Alabama. She knew who she was and what she wanted. She knew the cost, and she made the decision to pursue what they believed in enough to sacrifice her own security. At that point, she wasn't even 